This is the Blaine Southern Podcast. Hello, I'm Arslan Mohammed. Over the next 20 minutes or so, we're taking you to Berlin and behind the scenes of our current exhibition, which opened over a very lively gallery weekend at the end of April. Two artists, Frank Thiel and Lillian Tomasco, both showing with Blaine Southern for the first time, present in our Berlin gallery very different but equally compelling bodies of work in which their respective practices perfectly distinguish themselves. In this podcast, we'll hear from a filmed interview with Lillian, in which she discusses the gestation of her new paintings and the complex evolution of emotions from thought to canvas for the show entitled A Dream Of. Then we hear from Frank Thiel in an interview in which he explains the ideas and processes behind Quintaneras, a series of portraits of Cuban girls taken on the traditional celebration of their 15th birthday. It's an occasion that's seen as marking the transition to adulthood, and on these occasions, the taking of pictures is an essential and probably the most important part of the celebration, and most Cuban homes will have pictures of the daughters of the house or those of friends and relatives on display or in a photo album. Frank first visited Cuba in 1988, and in this project, he connects his deep love and knowledge of the country's culture and tradition with a timely study of life and change in a country in the midst of significant transition. So, first up, let's meet Lilian Tomasco and her reflections on the body of work in the show A Dream Of. I'm always going back in time and like pulling things back, back into the present. It's really like trying to make sense of your own history in a way. In my late teens, I started picking up a camera and uh, photographing kind of ordinary scenes that seemed to me charged with something. When I started painting, I looked for a subject matter, so I looked through my archive of images, particularly an unmade bed. I remember that it was the end of a relationship, and so it, it seemed to me very powerful, even though it was an ordinary scene. So I took that into my painting practice and started building on images that kind of sparked a memory or took me back in time. I was always drawn to abstracting things and because Polaroid's abstract reality, you're trying to visualize things that you can't grasp in any other way. In terms of the way that I paint is I engage in a lot of, you know, erasure. I put things on and there is kind of conflict, there is stoppage, there is flow, so there's a lot of movement. The paintings in the show, A Dream Of, are all based on memories of dreams. The, the interest in dreams is related to my interest in the bed. And sleep in particular I find fascinating because um, we spend so much time sleeping and it's, a, and it's an area that we don't really explore. Or it's kind of a sort of like a wasteland that we don't access. So I like to explore it. I like to bring stuff up. I based the, the paintings on dreams that were so visceral that they kind of remain with me to this day. I had this one dream where plants were growing out of my teeth. I, I still kind of have it in front of me till this day. I try and encapsulate the feeling of a dream, the sense of a dream. I had my best dreams probably when I was the most disturbed as a person, which was in my teens, 
And growing up in Switzerland, I was born to a um, family of immigrants. Both my parents came from Hungary in 56. They fled the political troubles. So it was a sort of unhappy home. And I spent a lot of time on my own. And even though it was difficult, it taught me to live in my imagination and make alternate worlds. It's, it's wonderful. It saves our lives. Art, I think, saved my life. That was Lilian Tomasco, and her show A Dream Of continues at Blaine Southern Berlin until June the 16th. Now, running alongside her show is Frank Thiel, and here he is talking to us about his adventures in Cuba for the preparation of the series Quinchineras. Frank, the series that you have at Blaine Southern is called Quinchineras. Oh, we have to work on that. It's called Quinceañeras. See, this is why it's good to be here. Can you repeat it, please? Say it again. Quinceañeras. Quinceañeras. Almost, you're getting better. Quinceañeras. Quinceañeras. Quince means 15 in Spanish. Año means the year, many years. And so it's a combination of 15 and years. Quinceañeras. 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 How did you discover Quinceañeras? It's uh, not so difficult to discover because it's a long historical tradition in the Latin world. And when you travel to certain countries or even have friends in Latin American diaspora communities anywhere else in the world, it's very, very difficult to avoid that you get to know the tradition because this is probably the most important day in the life of Latin American women. And they are celebrating the 15th birthday as a symbol for the transformation from childhood to adulthood um, in the life of a young woman. So, so what form does the celebration take? Pardon? What form does the celebration take? Is it a party or a some sort of festival or what happens? It varies a little bit from country to country. Uh, it's slightly difficult and uh, slightly different in Dominican Republic, Mexico, Colombia or Cuba. There's always a party depending on the financial abilities of the family. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's bigger. A party for family members and friends and uh, sometimes there's a church service before uh, but I've been to very, very big quinceanera celebrations as well, where like 20 families celebrate together and rent like ballrooms. Wow, so it can get really, it really, can, really big. Yes, it depends very much on your social status, but uh, almost every family is trying to do something at least that the young women do remember this day. It's also a matter of proud and also a matter of it's kind of a gesture towards mm. the family and and your neighbors is there an equivalent for men is there anything that celebrates when a boy transitions into adulthood not from what i know of course boys turn 15 as well but what they usually do in these communities is they just hook up with their friends go out have some drinks and <laughs> so try to have a good time yeah. so it's almost like any other birthday yeah so there's not really any 
special occasion then for, for boys? No, it's very much a women thing and it's also only women involved in it, in the organization and all the logistics and all the practical and emotional sides of it. It's always the mothers, the grandmothers, the aunties, the sisters. I mean, men are there as well and of course the father walks a girl into the party traditionally but I think men are only covering are only involved in covering the financial mm. sides of it but the whole celebrations is actually a woman thing probably the most important day in your life I mean mm. a marriage is important as well but it has an uncertain outcome <laughs> the 15th birthday is something nobody can take away from yeah. you so family Families are making a huge effort. It's interesting because in many cultures the wedding is the big occasion for the family to spend their money and to make a big statement. But when you look at Latin American communities, they have very similar problems like we do. A lot of couples separate again, they remarry or there's another boyfriend, so sometimes the partner of the mother is not the father of the girl anymore. So, so at least with a 15th birthday, like you say, there's a degree of assurance Exactly. I mean, this, is, this is one of the few things for granted, like death and life. <laughs> so just let's give us some background. Uh, obviously, you are an artist known for your work in Berlin. How did you end up exploring the, these cultures in South America and especially Cuba? I have a long history of going to, to Havana. Uh, so I've seen the country in very different historical situations. What was that like in '88? Must have been really it was not easy to get in, but I mean, that was still a good time because Cuba was still supported by the former Soviet Union. The early 90s were actually the most complicated and shocking times in Cuba. I've been going back and forth to Cuba for many years, as I said, and uh, I started even taking pictures there in a kind of more serious way. But I was never happy with, uh, with my results, so I kept going to the island to learn more, to understand more, to make more friends. And I would say around five, six years ago, after Fidel resigned and Raul took over, there was a certain dynamic happening in Havana, which was very unknown for a country that is actually a very static one. It was a little bit like an electroshock going through society. Nobody knew what is actually going to happen because there is not really, there's not really transparency in in the political process as we know it from our countries. So nobody knew this is the first reforms and there's more reforms coming or this is already the end of the reforms. But there was this uncertain dynamic and I thought, oh, that might be an interesting moment in the history of the island and I tried to find a way to translate it in, into images. But I wasn't really sure how I could address this. How did you experiment here? I mean, I'm, I'm really interested how you came to choose this as a symbol of this change. So, but I'm also curious as to what, what kind of directions did you... What happened at the same time in Cuba is that more and more digital technology arrived to the island and not overnight but at some point you could see all these photographers photographing young women in the streets of Havana which was not an unusual thing but not on the scale and whenever you went to the little teams and ask them what are you doing they are saying oh we are taking quinceañera photographs. I knew about the tradition before but then I was like Oh, maybe I should mm. see what kind of work are these photographers actually doing. And I started a research process about the history of it, but also about the quinceañera photography that is uh, happening nowadays in 
Cuba. And uh, at some point I thought that's actually a very interesting metaphor because it's not only the individual life of the young woman going through a transformation, it's actually the whole island going through a very similar process. I mean, it's not the Cuba anymore that we used to know and it's going to be definitely a different kind of Cuba in 10 years. So both the individual women and the society as a whole are actually standing in front of a very uncertain future, which I thought is actually a very good combination mm. um, to bring it together. And this is kind of the connection to my earlier works, because at first glance my work might look very different and heterogenic, but I think the red thread running through all my works over the last 25 years is actually that I'm very much interested in places that undergo transformation and also political and social constellations that are undergoing change and transformation as well. And this is where I see the connection between what I have done in Cuba and what I've done uh, in the years before. How did you go about, uh, once you decided on, on this particular path, how did you go about putting a team together and actually doing it? How was that as an outsider in Havana? From the very beginning, it was uh, clear to me that I don't want to travel with a European team to Cuba and uh, take pictures there. From the very beginning, this was intended to be a collaborative project. So even though it's more complicated, I decided to, to build a team in Cuba, which I have been working on for almost two years in, and because um, I wanted to have the view and the knowledge and the emotional capacity of Cubans influencing my work. I didn't want to go to an island with like a ready concept and just mm -hmm. execute something that I have been thinking about in the north under circumstances that are very different uh, from the circumstances we live in. So it's been all about the collaboration. I built a team first. They're all semi-professionals or non-professionals because first of all there is not so many professionals there and secondly for instance with the makeup I didn't want to have a professional makeup. I wanted to have a kind of semi-professional makeup which is close to what Cubans usually do, you know, I didn't want to overdo it, I want to have as much authenticity in the work as possible. And um, then I had to think about the legal side of it, which means I needed an institutional partner because I needed an artist visa to work in Cuba. There's all these logistic things connected with uh, working there, which means I started traveling around Havana, like thousands and thousands of kilometers to find um, possible locations for photo shoots. And at the same time, we had to initiate the process, how do we find the families to participate mm. in this series. It's been a, been a very complex work, you know, like the taking of the picture itself was probably 5 or 10% of the work, but all the preparation and all the communication consumed uh, most of the time. Because it must have been difficult for you as an outsider to come in and to set up as a photographer with this very, very deep traditional society very closed-off society, generally speaking. Especially when you want to do it differently and you yeah. don't and you don't want to stick to the... You don't want to stick... Or you don't... Because, I mean, the project could have never been about repeating something that is already there. So it, the idea was never to, to repeat what Cuban Quincy and Yara photographers are doing. But as in any other place in the world, when you... When you are leaving a certain format or a certain formula, it requires a lot of communication to convince people to participate uh, in your idea. Especially in a country like Cuba, where they have a completely different visual education because photography has never been that widespread. Things like internet, cell phones, selfies, Instagram is a fairly new thing to Cuba. So what we did is um, I, I put a teacher on my team, like a secondary 
school teacher, which means she's teaching 15-year-olds. And this is actually how we started the process. She was asking in her school, she was asking other teacher friends she had, and then the girls asked their friends like that. And at the same time, all of us, all my Cuban friends, all my team members started asking in their neighborhoods and their families. So to build the first group of um, young women to be photographed was the biggest challenge. And later when I returned to Cuba for the second group, I did bring all the pictures I have been taking. And so then, then the girls have been very, very appreciative because they saw the results of our work. And most of the times they really, really loved it. So they started talking to their friends. So we developed a certain dynamic to find more families. The biggest problem, or not the biggest problem, but one of the challenges was that I always wanted to photograph, I always photographed the girls in their neighborhoods where they live. Uh, so sometimes I had beautiful locations where I definitely wanted to take a picture, but I had no family living close to the location, so we had to find mm -hmm. a family in this neighborhood. But sometimes like we had families who would love to participate in the project, and then I had to find locations near their homes. So unlike what quinceañera photographers in Cuba are doing, I went in a completely different direction because what they are doing, the pictures are kind of constructions to actually escape the reality and uh, they create like fantasy and dream worlds, mm -hmm. which is a very natural thing for a teenager. We all have had it that we imagine our future mm -hmm. in the brightest colors. So all the work they are doing is actually to avoid reality. And then there is this German photographer coming and he says, all I want in the picture is <laughs> your reality. So... It, it's it's required a lot of communication <laughs> and convincing and I mean I have to say in the end when I showed the families and the young women my best photograph uh, they preferred that most of the times over the photographs uh, they had Did they done with Cuban to do? Did they understand the concept no no people understood it I mean but still they couldn't they couldn't picture it you know mm. like how does it really look like in the end you know so they were really happy when I came back and I showed us additionally. To win their support, I did make a second session for every family, which according to their ideas. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in a different location with a different outfit, completely different poses. And, then you do uh, and they got a second session. I mean, this second session was executed with the same care and professionalism like mine. And so yeah. what they have gotten in the end is my best picture as a print and a CD with a whole another session executed, as I said, with the same professionalism. But so. How? How, what would they ask you to do? I mean, like you said, to create a more dream world, fancy world. Would it be finding a really beautiful location nearby or yeah, creating I mean, a, a set? Or the, how, how would that work? The second session went more in, into the direction of what Cuban quinceañera photographers are doing. You know, you go to a beautiful place, mm. which is kind of renovated, you know, or you go to the sea, or you include a lot of your family members in the pictures. Going back to your the series that you did for your project, um, it, normally when an artist will do a series like this, you, the model that you photograph, you look for some, some qualities in the model, you, know, you look for a certain physical appearance, or all the time now you've been talking, it's always about the family, the family, so did you, you didn't really have much control over the actual appearance of the subject. Well, at the, um, at the beginning, I did leave it completely to my team, you know, and, but while we were in more into the work, yeah, I understood that actually my team doesn't really understand what I'm looking for. And, uh, what didn't they understand? Even for me as a photographer, taking pictures for 30 years is sometimes very, very complicated to predict if a session is actually working, is going to work well or not. 
and uh, for an outsider who is not involved in photography it's even even more difficult because they don't really understand what it requires to make a good picture from the other side of the person who is going to be photographed so I involved myself more and more in in the when you you want if you want to call it casting process. Right. Another crucial point was like the dresses the girls are wearing because at the beginning, I completely underestimated the importance of the shape and the color of the dresses in relationship to the locations. And then I realized, oh, sometimes you know certain colors don't work at certain locations and certain forms don't work at certain locations. So I involved myself in the finding of the dresses. I think that's a really more important more point because the well. position of the, the, the model, the dresses and the location is one of the things I really like about this series. You, you create some really strong contrasts. I mean, the dresses are historical as well. I mean, they're actually, I mean, the shape of the dresses is actually uh, the shape of uh, colonial dresses. So those kind of dresses were brought into the Caribbean and South America, mostly by the French and the Spanish people. That's why I've been choosing the dress, because this is a historical reference in the work, even though most of the girls prefer pictures and completely different mm -hmm. outfits when they work with the Cuban quinceanera photographers. Generally speaking, I didn't only want to make a portrait of a generation of young Cuban women in this probably historic moment in, in the history of the island. I also wanted to make visual journey through the entire city of Havana. That's why I've decided to work in all 15 municipalities of Havana, which is complicated the process unnecessarily probably as well, but uh, that's my way of working. Because we had to go to a lot of neighborhoods, neither I have been to, nor my Cuban team has ever been at, because transport and commuting in Havana is always complicated, requires a lot of time and it is a very expensive thing. So Cubans rather avoid going to a different neighborhood than, than being curious mm -hmm. about other neighborhoods, um, as we would probably be. And this was also the point where I, where I decided to photograph the, the young women in their neighborhoods because the home of the family has a completely different significance in the life of a Cuban than in comparison to a society like ours which is um, defined by a huge mobility of our citizens. Yeah, we move yeah. from one end to the city to the next, or from yeah. one country to the other, or from one city to the other. This dynamic is kind of unknown in Cuba because people actually lack of the resources to do it, and there's also a shortage of um, housing. So the home of the family is often the home of the family for generations already. So your home and your neighborhood defines you it's part of your identity. Uh, it's it's yeah. a much stronger part of your identity than, than in comparison to my life, for instance, or to your life. And that's why I decided to photograph the girls in these neighborhoods. And so how long from the start to finish did this whole series take? From making the de decision that this is going to be what I want to do, from like building a team to the end of it, it was al almost two years. A few of my galleries asked me, and do you do any other works? <laughs> Like, do you take these and these yeah. kind of pictures? And I was like, Lit literally, there is not a, there is not a free five minutes. You right. Know? So you had to be pretty much in this space. So either I have been in Cuba working seven days a week, or I have been back in Europe working on all these images um, for myself and for the families. So actually, there was no time to breathe within these one and a half, two years. Well, the show is opened now at Blaine, and uh, there was a huge opening over Gallery Weekend. 
What was your, how do you feel about the, the opening? What, what kind of reactions were you getting? What were people saying to you at the opening since then? I think pe people really, really love the work. The response has been really strong and very emotional in certain points. But of course, it's a huge surprise for a lot of people mm. that Frank Thiel is doing this kind of work now. Especially when they know you from your photography in Berlin. And, yeah. Because um, the connection between my earlier works and what I have been doing in Cuba, for me, is obvious. As I explained it a little bit earlier in our interview, but for other people it looks like a complete departure and kind of reinventing um, your visual vocabulary or your interest in the world. So only when you really start talking with the people about the works, um, they see the connection to what I've done before and they also gain a better understanding of the work because when you do a project in the south of our world so deeply researched and so carefully executed and then you exhibit it in the north a lot of misunderstandings or miscommunication can happen very very easily because honestly my feeling is that the north doesn't really have an idea how the how the south or how a southern culture actually looks like and how a southern culture actually works and um, so I think the work requires a lot of communication around it to really make people understand what they're actually looking at. And finally, what do you have coming up next now that you've spent the last two years with your head more or less in Cuba? Do you have another project on the horizon now which is you're working on developing or what, what do you have, what's happening? At the moment I'm trying to bring these works back to Havana mm -hmm. because I think that would be very, very interesting how the Cubans do actually react um, to this work, which is part of their heritage and part of their culture. And so this is what I'm working on right now, and I'm trying to realize the show sometime next year. Uh, additionally, I'm thinking about doing another series in Havana, which is a little bit too early to talk about. So this city really has a pull for you. There's something there that since your first visit in 88 to well, 30 years later, you, you're still attracted to exploring Cuba and As I said, um, I think it's an historically very, very important mm. phase in the history of yeah. the island, and and I don't want to miss on it, you know. <laughs> so. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. <laughs> Pleasure. And that was Frank Thiel. And if you're in Berlin, you can go check out his work as well as Lilian's at Blaine Southern Berlin until June the sixteenth. And that's it for this edition of the Blaine Southern Podcast. You can keep up to date with all our news on social media and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts for fresh episodes. Our next edition also focuses on Berlin and a very special event that took place over Gallery Weekend this April. So till then, from me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Blade Southern Podcast was written and presented by me, Arsene Mohammed, and I'd like to thank all our participants on this edition. Music is Arm's Length by Uncle, featuring Elliot Power, Mink, and Yazid, and it's from the album The Road Part One, courtesy of Uncle, Songs for the Deaf.